Okay. Um, first announcements that have to do with the class. Um, my therapist has told me I'm supposed to channel my obsessive compulsive behavior into positive things. So if you could put your smartphones in that basket, then I'll be able to teach. But otherwise, my obsessive compulsive disorder is going to like make me all nervous and I won't be able to teach coherently. So it's really important to me. Thank you. Okay. My therapist is very happy now. <laughs> okay. Like, you're missing a part of that. What? You're missing the important part of that suit. Okay. Yes. I am my own therapist. I have a certificate that says that I'm a therapist. And I'm a therapist. <laughs> Last year, the students in my note gave me a certificate that says I'm a qualified therapist. Yeah. I just goes to show that you can be certified without having any qualifications. Okay. Um, my name is Rabbi Kaufman. Uh, I, what did they title this class? Did they? I think on the winter program they changed the title. Oh, I don't have the winter program. I think program. it's just said Fundamentals in Faith. Fundamentals in Faith. Mm. Fundamentals or to the Torah emphasis. Fundamentals of Torah Okay, I don't know what it is. I'm telling you what we're going to do. I don't know what they titled it. Okay. Okay, what we're doing this week. This is only this week. What's happening after this week, I don't know. Um, is that I'm going to be giving three classes about fundamentals about Torah. Um, so, today, we're going to be... We're going to be doing a class about how different opinions can both be right, which is a pretty important notion because when you study Torah, you'll find there are differing opinions. So how can everybody be right? Or at least not everybody, but at least more than one opinion. Tomorrow's class is going to be um, about what, how does the Torah expect us to um, relate to its wisdom? Where does that wisdom come from? Okay. All right. And then Wednesday, I'm going to do a taxonomy and an overview of the entire Torah. Um, because Torah is a word that gets used a lot with different meanings, and we will learn about all the different parts of the Torah, um, what they are and how they interact with each other. Yes? Today you're speaking about differing opinions or contradicting opinions? Contradicting. Contradictory. Thank you for the correction. Okay. So we don't need our time. No. Sorry. I also, but I was asked to do this, so do as you're told. Okay, um, one other announcement. Today is the yard site, the day of the passing of my mother-in-law. Um, so I would like to dedicate this learning for the elevation of her soul. People often say for the memory of, which is a really poor translation. The Hebrew is for the elevation of the soul, because the one thing a soul can't do in heaven is elevate itself. It's kind of stuck. And the ability to elevate oneself happens through learning Torah and doing mitzvahs in this world. So those who are connected, either directly or indirectly, can do mitzvahs and learn Torah on behalf of the soul of someone who's departed. And that helps that soul become further elevated. So her name was Sarah, um, the daughter of Yaakov. Someone's passed on. Ashkenazi customers use the father's name. And um, my wife asked me if I could say something very briefly about her before we actually start. Um, I never knew her because she passed away before we got married, or before we actually met. Um, one thing that my wife said that she remembers very much is that she always had the sense from her mother that her mother enjoyed being with her children as people. 
Very often a mother can be preoccupied with taking care of things, um, practical stuff, um, making sure the child is succeeding, but doesn't give the child a sense that the parent actually enjoys and values being around them as an actual person. Um, and it's very important, probably it's one of the most important things that a, a parent and especially a mother can do is to give the child a sense that they're, that they're not just loved in, a, in an abstract sense, but that the parent genuinely enjoys being in the presence of their child as an individual person. Um, and then that's something that she continues to derive strength from and lessons from and wanted me to share with all of you. So this class is for her soul, and then we'll get on to the actual class. All right? Okay. I make it a policy of mine not to try and convince people of things, especially when it comes to Judaism. Um, in other words, I do not teach any of the classes with the point of this is why you should believe this is correct. Um, but I also do not teach any of the classes from the perspective that this is just like a possibility. I'm teaching, these from, from, I'm teaching the class from the perspective of how does Orthodox Judaism generally um, the Chabad approach and it more particularly understand and see itself. Why you're interested in hearing that? I mean, I have my reasons why I think you're interested and you probably have your reasons why you think you're interested. Maybe you're interested in doing anthropology study about what those weird Jews think. Um, maybe it's because you have a godly soul which has a deep yearning to connect to God and this motivating you to do it. But the structure of the class and the tone which I teach the class is that the Torah is true, not because I expect you to already buy into it, but because the Torah understands itself as being true. And so if you want to understand how the Torah sees itself and how it um, hopes people relate to it, you have to adopt that perspective to understand. And in a similar sense that if you're in a negotiation, you have to understand where the other person is coming from, even if you disagree with them, because otherwise you won't understand what they're saying, what their motivations are, what they're trying to achieve. Okay, so why you should believe, that's your own personal decision. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get involved in that, A, because I don't like to fail, um, so I set my goals low, and B, I think it's very unhealthy if a person bases their religious commitments on the fact that they heard a persuasive rabbi say, explain something to them. That connection with God is something that's too fundamental to be based on someone else's persuasive abilities, whether they be good arguments, charisma or anything else. So that's the approach we're going to take. Okay. So we're going to start by playing a game. Yeah. 20 questions? Yes. Oh. Okay. Is it chicken soup? However, okay, the way this, this 20 questions game, so has anyone not played 20 questions? Not played 20 questions, raise your hand. Okay. Sure, what? Okay, we're gonna play twenty. Now, it's going to be a different version of twenty questions than the normal version of twenty questions. However, the differences only affect me; they don't affect you. Okay, so we're gonna play the game of twenty questions. It's gonna look a little weird when I'm doing. In the end, after the game is over, I will explain the rules that I had to follow. Okay, but for you, when people have to come up with the questions, um, it's no different. So. To refresh everyone's memory, um, you ask a question. Um, it's a yes or no question. We're going to go around in a circle. If you can't think of a question in a reasonable amount of time, we're going to skip you. <laughs> start with Heather. We start at the right. <laughs> in Judaism, we always start at the right. Okay. Um, and 
Make sure your question is useful. So if like we've already ascertained that it is not alive, don't ask, is it a mammal? <laughs> like, that's not helpful. Right? We want to narrow it down. Okay. Um, and then after 20 questions, um, you should be able to get pretty close as to what it is. Yeah? Okay. okay. And just to make sure that things are kept track of, I will be writing down what the thing is. Okay. I swear if it's chicken soup. <laughs> yeah. Well, Henan, now you're lost, so. <laughs> okay. Is it edible? It is edible. One second. Are you supposed to eat it on Travis? <laughs> No, you are not supposed to eat it on Shabbos. There's no, let me be clear. There is nothing that says you should be eating it on Shabbos. But I don't mean, yeah, that. There's nothing that says you, you're supposed to eat it on Shabbos. It's not fish. Or meat. Or wine. Or hot. Or hot. Yeah. Just because it's edible doesn't mean it's will swim. Oh. No, chicken soup. Flour is edible. Sorry? Flour is edible. It's not food. Because Oscar's yummy. Everyone has going to say Is it normally eaten hot? It is not normally eaten hot. Was it once alive? One second. Um, in order for this to work properly, I'm going to ask you not ask the question until I tell you to ask the question. Okay. So you're going to have to ask a different question. <laughs> in order, in order, in order to make this work properly, I'm sorry. You're gonna have to ask it. Are we allowed to suggest to each other? Um, that's fine, but the person's turn is cannot ask the question until I tell them they should ask the question. Do you realize there were penalties? No, it's not a penalty. I should have been clear. It's just, it doesn't work. Giuliani, we're gonna skip over you now. Maybe okay. something about matter, like what? Yes. <laughs> ask the question. Yes. Okay, now ask a different question, please. Is it kosher? It is kosher. <laughs> okay, one Sorry. moment. One moment. Correct, Juliet. Yes. Is it a liquid? It is a liquid. Oh my god. It's gonna be chicken soup. <laughs> 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 no, no, it's it's not eating hot. hot. You can have cold chicken soup, it's yeah. just not as enjoyable. That's what yeah. normally okay. usually eat hot. Normally, what's the can normal? I be eating? Is it good to eat cold? Is it good to eat cold? <laughs> 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 no, it takes the question. One second. It's like repeating the question. <laughs> what is at the bottom of your drink, Jenna? Sugar. Sugar. What about the vessel it's served in? I was, yeah. Like, okay, you can ask again. Is it a solid color? Is it a solid color? Monochromatic? Yes. Wow, high up. It's going to be a piece. I was expecting a no. It's going to be a terrible. Okay. Is it kept in the refrigerator? 
is it kept in the refrigerator? Hmm. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's one of the things that some people do and some people don't, so. That's not really a good yes or no question, but I answered that, so. No, now you know that some people keep it in the refrigerator, some people don't. You have to add the word, yeah, you have to like, okay, fine. Wait, it is liquid. Why don't you ask? And it's a solid People put in a fridge. Okay. It's like used on something, or if you eat it by itself. Did he say something like that? No. What? I, I, it's not. So it's edible. It's not required to eat on Shabbos. It's not normally eaten hot. Um, it's kosher. It's a liquid. It's a solid color, and some people keep it in the fridge. What? It is your turn to ask a question. Uh, is this something that people typically consume alone as opposed to like with something else? No, it is. It is oh. No, it is not <laughs> normally eaten alone. It sounds like the sauce. Wait till the end. Wait, if you guess, wait for the question. That's not the If you ask if it is something like. If it's, let's say, juice, and it, is that like considered, like, are you going to get it? <laughs> it's yes or no, and it's just... Yeah, okay. Well, okay, so it's edible, not required to eat on Shabbos, not normally eaten hot. It is kosher. Uh, it's a liquid. It has a solid color. Some people keep it in the fridge, and it's not eaten alone. Oh, no, yeah. Maybe something about a sweet Okay, <laughs> whose turn is it? Ask a question. Is it red? It is not red. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> Guys, there's a lot of sauces that are one color. Can or cannot go in the fridge. I might literally. There's a lot of them. Ask about the sauce. One second. It's like honey versus water. Maya, no okay. Okay, whose turn is it? Shira. Yes. Um, is it in a squeezy bottle? <laughs> <laughs> All sauces are squeezy bottles. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I mean, I mean, is is it ever in a squeezy bottle? Is it usually in a squeezy? Be more specific. Okay. Is it usually in a squeezy bottle? <laughs> no, I think normally it's not. Not normal. Not usually. No, it's not oh. sweet. It's not sweet. So it's not teriyaki sauce. Good morning. Or jam. Is it like liquid? What if it's like bitter jam? I know. I'm saying like pick one. 
Is it more savory as opposed to bitter? It is more savory than bitter. Oh yeah. Ask about its viscosity. I think now it's too late to ask about it. It's too late to ask about viscosity. Yeah. Juliana, you missed your job. Is it thicker than water, like viscosity? It is not thicker than water. So it's a liquid, liquid. I asked your question, Maya. Was I denying your? Do people keep apple cider vinegar in the fridge? Okay. It's, it's edible, not required to eat on Shabbos, not normally eaten hot, kosher, liquid, solid color. Some people keep in the fridge, not eaten alone, not red, not usually in a squeezy bottle. It's not sweet, it's more savory, and it's not thicker than water. Oil. It's thicker than water. Oh. Is it water? Are you want to ask a question? No. Oh, I'm at, I still have questions? Yes. Um, well, there's 20 questions, and you only have used 13 of them. Oh. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, let's get moving. Is it mentioned in the Torah? Um, it is not mentioned in the Torah. The, like, the whole Torah. So it's not like spices, it's not, I mean, not spices, it's not like water. It's not water. It's not oil. Is it? Wait, 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 sorry, 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 is it a dark color? It is a dark color. Okay, I'm kind of with my mom on this one. I feel like these questions, like, what do you consider dark? Do you eat it with sushi? Is it soy sauce? It is soy sauce. Okay. All right. Good? You did a good job. You even have five more questions left if you want. Has anyone here ever seen soy sauce in a squeezy bottle? Yes. It's in like one of those drip bottles, but you don't I squeeze have, it. I have, I have. Interesting. Where do you right. get squeezed the soy sauce? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen it. But it doesn't usually come in a squeeze. It does not usually come in a squeeze. Okay, now, so that was like a pretty standard game of 20 questions, other than that you had to wait until I told you to ask the question. However, I did something different, which is I kept changing the answer. I was changing the answer. Now, my, now, so there was rules that I had to follow as well. And the rule is that I had to answer, uh, the rule is that I had to answer, I had to answer, I had to have an answer ready before you asked the question. And I had to answer truthfully based on that answer. And then I could change the answer after the question, but it had to be consistent with everything I'd already answered. So the first thing I wrote down was a carrot. And then I asked, is it edible? Okay, and the answer is a carrot is in fact edible. Edible. But then... I now, have the op- I now have the option of switching it to something else, which I did, as long as the thing I switch it to is still edible. edible. So as far as you're concerned, no, there's no difference. It's just as easy for you. And I change it to taco. Oh, tacos. <laughs> and then you ask, <laughs> is the, are you required to eat the taco on Shabbos? And the answer is, no, there's no requirement to eat tacos on Shabbos. Now, if, if God is taking amendments to Judaism, I'm open to that. As long as we're talking about those cheap American knockoff brands that I grew up with as a kid, not the real Mexican stuff. 
Um, I found some really good tacos here, in case you were wondering. Then you ask... <laughs> so, so, so once it was... Now, the thing that's not required to eat on Shabbos is flour, which is edible. So I change it to flour. And then you asked, is it, is it normally eaten hot? The powder flour. Flour is in flour layer. Yeah. And flour is not normally eaten hot. In fact, it's not normally eaten in general, but okay. But it's not normally eaten hot. So now I could change it, and I change it to salt. And someone asked, is it kosher? And yes, it's kosher. At which point I change it to oil, and someone asked, is it a liquid? And of course, oil being a liquid, I said yes. And so now I had to change it to something else, and I changed it to water. And then you started debating about normally cold. And I think, wait, 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 wait. Maybe the water wasn't fair because maybe people said water is normally drinking hot because it's not exclusively hot. So I backtracked, changed it to syrup to not to be misleading. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then you asked, is it a solid color? To which syrup is a solid color. And then I changed it to soy sauce. And then you ask, do some people keep to keep in the fridge? Some people keep in the fridge. Um, and then I change it to teriyaki sauce. Because I'm really stuck at this point. There's like not a wide range of things. You're right. stuck with yeah, sauces. Just, like, because, because I don't really think of ketchup as a liquid. Uh, and no. So yeah, I was like thinking, okay, sauces, sauces that you sometimes keep in the fridge. They're not normally eaten hot. I mean, it's not that, you know, liquid. Lemon juice. So lemon juice. So I was going to go, I was... So then not eaten alone, not red. Um, you didn't change it after that? And then I kept wagging between soy sauce, teriyaki sauce, and balsamic vinegar. And then at some point, <laughs> you got the question about is it sweet or savory? And, and, I was, and at that point, I was on soy sauce, and I had to put more savory. And at that point, I really was stuck as what else is savory that fit everything else. And then I was just soy sauce all the way down. Okay. Now, the reason why we're playing this game is that this game is used to illustrate a very important idea, which is that there are two different things that can happen. One is a process of discovery. In other words, there is a fact of the matter, something is already the case, and what the person is doing is they are discovering what is already the case. And this is usually how we think about um, learning, right? Something is already the case and you know, the book already says something, some event already happened in history, um, the laws of physics are whatever they are. And then your job as a person is to discover that. So the issue is you start out being unaware and then the idea is to become aware, right? So the process you're engaged in is getting out of your own ignorance. But the fact of the matter has already been established and it's independent of you, okay? So that's a process called discovery. There is another process called construction where something doesn't exist or it's, it doesn't exist in a certain state yet, and you are constructing it. So building a building is not a process of discovering the building, right? If you're, you know, the neighbors, they're not discovering the building. They are. Oh, they <laughs> <laughs> nice that they just discover. <laughs> Look, there's the building. But no, they're building in the process of constructing the building, okay? Um, you know, it's, it's quite disturbing to discover that one has children, right? <laughs> Right. Um, but there is a process, uh, there is a process involved of, 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 of creating children, raising children, constructing families. So there's this idea, different idea where the, 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 the fact has not yet been established and the person is involved in constructing that. Now, sometimes that's fairly obvious. When you're looking around the world, are you discovering the world or constructing the world? Discovering. Discovering. Okay. When you build a building, you're clearly constructing. That makes sense? Okay. Now, here's the question. Is it always 
obvious? Or is it even possible to tell which one you're doing? So when you play 20 questions, normally, what are you doing? Are you discovering the answer? Or are you constructing the answer? And you play 20 questions in this version. Are you, you're also constructing it, right? Because the fact that I picked soy sauce was a collaborative effort between you and me. Right? Why did I pick soy sauce? Because I had answered certain questions about carrots, tacos, flour, salt, oil, syrup, and teriyaki sauce and balsamic vinegar that had then forced me into a place where my mind could not think of anything else that seemed to fit that description other than soy sauce, right? But if I was have free range to pick whatever I wanted, I don't have to stick with soy sauce. So the inputs of your questions helped construct the answer. But in your experience of playing is the, uh, uh, on the, I guess, the user end of 20 questions, is there any difference other than you have to wait? For me to tell you it's time to ask? No. No. So you can be involved in a process that it feels experiential, like you're discovering, but actually involved in constructing something. Yes? Isn't there some idea in physics that I've mentioned before and got shot down about, but something about how when you measure things, you also change how, like... That is correct. Yes. You, you got shot down because you explained it wrong and you tried to draw an analogy that was incorrect. That was the problem. No, that's also how I remember it. I don't know how to explain it. I just like, thought that such a... Yes, there is a... Yes, yes. So, so in, in, the world, in the world of physics, in the world of physics, what, what, what was discovered... Um, or maybe constructed, but what was discovered is that when you do physics which think with things that are either very, very small um, or very, very cold, then it turns out that discovering and constructing go hand in hand. In other words, um, people might have heard of quantum mechanics and quantum, the big issue in quantum mechanics is it turns out that every time you try to discover things, you're actually constructing it. Um, so. You remember in high school you had those pictures of the atoms with the electrons circling around? Those are lies. The electrons aren't there. The electrons exist as a kind of, uh, of a math, as a mathematical object. And they only exist at a particular place in the atom when you try and bump into it. Okay? So similarly, like, like you ask a question and I change the answer, but I have to have an answer ready. When you, quote, ask an electron where it is, the electron has to have an answer ready. But if you're not asking... Then, then it's not that yeah, then there's no then it isn't in a place for it to. It's not that it, it does. It's not in all places. It's in no place. It's in a mathematical space. Anyway, I don't want to teach you quantum mechanics. But yes. Um, now, by the way, this when in, in physics this is weird, but in human relationships this is normal. When you are having a conversation, right? Do you have a pre-planned script of exactly what you're going to say? Or, you, or your answers and your, and what you, not even answers, you, the information you volunteer, your monologues in the middle of a conversation, are they being co-constructed with the other person? For instance, if you start to get a sense of person not so interested, do you change topics and stop revealing such personal information? Most people do. Yeah? If somebody gives you a, um, some, sign of a, some kind of a cue that they're more interested, you might continue beyond what you originally prepared to. It's not even if you're going to say, but even what you have to say. <laughs> For instance, somebody might make a comment that causes you to then all of a sudden think differently about a certain um, idea or experience, and now you have different information to share than you originally started out the conversation with. 
right? So in human relationships, the idea that discovery and construction are happening together, that discovering another person is actually part of constructing that other person, at least on some level, this is something that I think is relatively intuitive. It's just not intuitive when you think about physical objects that way. Okay? It's like, is the, is the t table have a color? I mean, most of them think, yeah. It's not that you app, it's not that you're looking at the table and somehow involved in constructing what color it is. That, that's weird to people. Um, this is, by the way, why parenting is so important because what do parents do? They have relationships with children and having those relationships with the children, they are not just discovering things about their children, but they are actually creating those things. Now, just because you're involved in construction doesn't mean you're the only party, right? It's not that you guys could just decide what the answer was, right? That it was co-construction between the two of us. The only difference was that I knew we were co-constructing and you, did you know you were co-constructing? No. No. You could, at some point you could, you, could, you could see or guess. Now, if you were playing 20 questions by like mail, so you couldn't tell how long the person was, would you be able to tell which version of 20 questions you're playing? No. no. Okay. So now here's the question. Is it the case that when Hashem gave the Torah at Har Sinai to Moshe, Hashem had in mind a list of do's and don'ts that was extremely detailed. And for the next um, 3,000 something years of Jewish history, we've been trying to make sure we're getting it right. Or is there a constructive element in the Torah? In other words, that it's not merely we are trying to make sure that we are discovering what God intended, but there's some element in which we're actually constructing what God intends. And so the view, certainly from the perspective of Hasidus and Kabbalah, but even from the perspective of many, of, of many so-called rational Jewish thinkers, is that there isn't a constructive element to the Torah. In other words, when God gave us the Torah, he did not give us a, there was not a, a secret teacher's list of all the right and wrong answers. And then throughout Jewish history, we're just hoping that we're getting it right, but we might be getting it wrong. So let's take an example. We're coming up to Hanukkah. Um, this is aside from the fact that Hanukkah wasn't given at Mount Sinai, but we'll set that aside for Wednesday's class. Why the rabbis can just make up mitzvahs hundreds of years later. Okay, but let's set that aside. Okay. Let's, for right now, we're going to rack and assume that rabbinic mitzvahs are just as much God's will as the biblical mitzvahs. So, the first night of Hanukkah, the best way to light the menorah is to light how many candles? Anyone know? No, not including Shabbos. One? One. So, you are correct if you're talking about what you're supposed to actually do. However, how many opinions are there as to what the correct answer to that is? There's two. And the school of Hillel, for now, and we'll just call them Base Hillel, they said that you're supposed to light one candle the first night, but the school of Shammai, known hereafter as Beis Shammai, said you're supposed to light eight candles the first night. How many should you light the second night? Two or seven. Two or seven. Huh. Do you know why Hanukkah is eight days long? Because the oil lasts eight <laughs> That's true, but there's only seven days of miracle there. Because the oil burning for one day is perfectly natural. They found the oil. Okay, but another reason you could give is that because if, if there was an odd number of days of Hanukkah, the middle day, Beishama and Basil would be in agreement. Well, we wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> God forbid the rabbis should agree with each other. Okay, so... Is there a radio thing? 
And there, are there, there is a rabbi who does give that answer. Yes. He happens to be my father, um, but he's a rabbi and he can give that answer. <laughs> it's a famous question in which there's like a thousand different answers to. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, it could be my father got it from somewhere else. I know it from my father. So, so now who's right? Now, I want to bracket the question as to who's right now in terms of what we should do. We have a rule that says that we follow um, base Hillel always whenever they dispute with Beis Shammai, except for a few circumstances. So in practice, if you light your menorah one, two, three, four, you're doing it correctly. If you light menorah eight, seven, six, you're doing it incorrectly. But let's backtrack before that rule was established. When Beis Shammai lit their menorah the first day eight, were they doing something wrong? So if you follow the view that Hashem always has the right answer already and the rabbis are trying to discover it, then either Beis Shammai is doing it wrong or Beis Hillel is doing it wrong. Because it's, I mean, it's either one or it's eight. It's not both. But if you have the constructivist view, you add or at least some element of construction going on there, we could say that the actual will of God is not actually fully constructed until the rabbis put their opinion. And so... To the, to the school of Shammai, to Be Shammai, since their view is that eight candles should be lit, for them, God's will is that they should light eight candles. And for the school of Hill, for Basil, since it's one candle, they should learn, they should light one candle. Yes? I guess that that's like an example of construction, isn't it? Like simpler to talk about places in the Torah where someone asked something and then Moshe went to Hashem and then Hashem said, change of heart, like... I mean, or even even without Moshe, like, I don't know, the, it says Hashem created Adam and Chava, right, and told them to multiply, and then they multiplied, and then they created people who created people who created people who created the generation of the flood, and then Hashem said, and then it says Hashem regretted in his heart. Except Hashem, it doesn't say that Hashem regretted in his heart. Well, how do you get well, that's the issue. That word has many meanings, mm-hmm. only one of which is regret. Okay. In fact, can someone get me a Chumash Bereshus? I know, but th- th- this is. I'm going exp- to explain to you. I'm going to explain to you why. So it's the end of the parsha Bereshus, mm-hmm. and the exact Hebrew is. Vayinochem Hashem, and Hashem was nochem, that he made man on the earth, v'yisi'atze v'aliboy. Okay. Okay. So, um, the, 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 the word, the, the way Rashi explains is that Rashi says, he has this very interesting thing, he says that it was, um, there was a regret before God, okay? And if you look at, um, and if you look at the Unclus, he also doesn't translate it as if Hisham changed his mind. Now, there are those commentaries who do explain that he changed his mind, but Rashi doesn't seem to be implying that he's changing his mind. In other words, there are many things that you feel, shall we say, um, in what, at one time you feel one way, another time you feel another way. It doesn't necessarily mean you changed your mind. There's a famous story in the Gemara that um, someone asked Rabbi Gamliel about this. Rabbi Gamliel says that when you have a baby, you're happy, and God forbid the child, you know the child will grow up and die. 
And God forbid a person lose a child, they're sad, right? There's, no, there's not a changing of the mind in the middle. It's just you're relating to one thing then, another thing now. What I want to get at is, is, is a little bit deeper idea, which is that it's not even predetermined. That if we talk about the Torah coming down from Hashem to the people, what we get is not a fully formed Torah at all. Okay? Um, in fact, the, 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 the sages compare the giving of the Torah to conception. And so if Hashem is the father and the Jewish people are the mother, um, at conception, do you have a fully formed child? No, right? There's a process by which the father transmits to the mother, and there's a process where the mother's body then develops that into a full child. Okay. Which is why the Jewish people are always described as the feminine aspect. So the Torah, as was given to us from Hashem, it's not that it was totally open-ended and anything goes, but it, it, ha- it doesn't have the full-fledged form yet. And there are many ways of thinking about this. I'm going to give you a few. Okay. So one way is we're going to take the most important aspect of the Torah, which is the halacha, which I guess you could call it the legal aspect of the Torah. Okay. Now, what is Hashem's will? Hashem's will is that the laws of the Torah should be followed. Okay. That's what is important to Hashem. Now, what is following the laws of the Torah meant to achieve? Differing opinions as to the matter. But the laws of the Torah are meant to be followed. They're important. They're meaningful. They're supposed to accomplish something. Okay? Differing views as to what those things are. Okay. Now, here's the question. What determines what is the law of the Torah? So let's think about... Um, let's think about a, a law outside the religious context. In order to have an actual law, like, like, take a step back for a second. There are many things that if you think about them, in, if you think about them very superficially, not in reality, you can come to one conclusion. If you think about them practically as they are in reality, you come to different conclusions. Um, so, vacation sounds fun, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just like, just take the whole family, just go away for vacation for two weeks. Sounds fun, right? Okay, what happens when you realize that you have seven children and the oldest is ten? Right, now, now you start working through the practicalities of that. All of a sudden, right, like in the actual reality of dealing with all of the, the things and yeah, now is the vacation so worth it? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it, it's, a different, it's a different thing, right? So when you kind of have this in this way, so let's talk about law as an actual reality as opposed to just some, you know, esoteric, ethereal kind of thing. In order for there to be a law, okay, what, what, things, what things need to be present if there's going to be an actual, real law? Any law. The fact that Torah has its own laws as a cycle. If there's going to be a law, what do you need? What are some of the ingredients of laws? Enforcement. What? Any kind of legal system. You need, you need some, you need the law, someone needs to be subject to the law, right? The law has to apply to people, okay? Enforcement. You need enforcement. Right? That's already important. You cannot have a legal system where there is no concept of enforcement whatsoever. It's not the law. Okay? What else do you need? Authority? You need authority. Right? Let's break authority down. One aspect of authority is you need to have legitimacy. In other words, people need to see that the people who are... That the law has a leg- is, is, has a legitimate, okay, but well, there's another aspect of authority. There's enforcement. There's legitimacy. What else do you need? 
What if I think the law is one thing and you think the law is something else? Is that going to work? Judges. That's not going to work, right? Okay. So we need also some way of adjudicating what the law is, right? So we need, we need the authority that gives the law itself legitimacy. We need the authority to enforce the law, but we also need the authority to adjudicate the law. You know, what actually is the law? And that actually can then be subdivided into two things. You need to figure out if there's a dispute as what the law sh- it should be, or if we know what the laws are, but there's a dispute about which laws are applicable to which circumstances. Right? Like we can all agree that we should treat intentional murder one way and unintentional murder a different way, but we might disagree as to about a specific case whether that should be viewed as intentional or unintentional. So you need that kind of adjudicating authority as well. If you don't have these things, do you have laws? No. Okay, what else do you need about with laws? In order for laws to work. Some other interesting stuff. Yeah. Can I just ask, is this, does this apply also to like when kids make up a game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they, 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 they need to, right now, how you do that, there's an interesting question. Like what, 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 sometimes, you know, depending on the dynamics, sometimes there's a particular kid that most of the kids thinks is pretty, you know, friendly with everybody and pretty, and pretty, um, um, intelligent. And so sometimes they'll defer to that kid in disputes that actually happens on the playgrounds. Sometimes they'll run to a parent or a teacher. Sometimes they'll consult. Sometimes if it's a merely issue, what's written in the rule book, and, they, and it's already, there's rules there, right? But yeah, these are, these are issues. Okay. And you need enforcement mechanisms, right? Do kids have enforcement mechanisms? Yes. We don't play with that kid because he cheats. It's an enforcement mechanism. Okay. What other things do you need for laws in order for them to actually have law? Some... Do we need some kind of codification or like a book, like you just said? Um, well, you don't. You, you you do need some way of storing the laws, right? Because you can't have a legal system and have everybody ignorant of the legal system. Um, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a famous idea in the law, which is that ignorance of the law is not really supposed to be a justifiable excuse. But then the corollary to that is the law has to be knowable. <laughs> if you make right a legal system where nobody really knows what the laws are. <laughs> Um, it's hard to really say that that has any kind of justice to it. Okay? It has to be reasonable expectation of knowing the laws. So we're not- okay? Which either means the laws have to be easy to remember or the people who are the repositories of laws have to be readily accessible. So you either need to have very simple laws that everybody can understand and easily remember or you need to have a class of people who are accessible to the majority that they can get legal advice from or legal rulings from. Otherwise, you can't have law. Yeah. Now we're not just talking about laws. Now we're talking about fair laws. Well, I'm I'm going I'm going I'm going I'm going to I'm going to say that the law has to be fair because that's an aspect of legitimacy. If people don't see that the law has some notion of justice, then it loses legitimacy. Um, I'm thinking of like games that I've seen played like at a party where it's like um, I'm gonna say. Like, everyone's going to go around and guess something, right? And I know the rule and you don't. And, like, there's... I've never seen anyone, like, in an uproar challenge the legitimacy of the rules. Well, like, I, we, we did that today, right? Sure, or, like, what happened here today. But, like, here, I mean, like, you told us now, whatever. Like, you, usually, yeah, you do get told at the end. But, like, nobody says, well, like, well, that wasn't fair. I didn't know the rules. Like, in some contexts, rules can be rules without people having access to them. And they don't necessarily feel, like, blatantly unjust. 
So we could refine that and say that it's not that you have, you have to be able to you have to be able to have access to the rules in such a way that you can follow them. Whether you have to have conscious knowledge of the rules is a separate discussion. Right? In other words, the situation you're describing and that how we did today is you, you still had access to the rules. It wasn't just you didn't have conscious knowledge as to what rules you're following. How did we have access to the rules? Because I told you what to do and what not to do. In other words, the reason why you need to have, to have knowledge of the rules or access to the rules is because when the rules are supposed to govern your behavior, you need to have, be able to do that. You need to be able to let that happen. In other words, if, if you're playing a game and the rule is that you're not allowed to do something and there's no way that you get the sense you're not supposed to do a thing you're not supposed to do, then it won't work. No, but it does. Like, there are games where it's like, oh, if a person sneezes in the middle of giving their answer, then they're out. But that's a rule. Because they don't necessarily know. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but... So... I, I, I get what I, I get what you're saying, but the the reason why the reason why those things work is because the, because there's there's what you're doing is you're ordering different rules. You have rules to make things fun, which people don't need to know, mm-hmm. and then it actually is fun. But if people start to get a sense that they're playing and it's not fun anymore, it's not going to work. But, and it goes back. There has to be some sense of justice in order for it to have legitimacy. Where that justice is located obviously varies in the circumstances, okay. right? Civil laws don't have to have the same kind of thing as say you know ritual laws. But there has to be some element of that. Yeah, what else do you need? Is punishment an assessment? I would put that in back into the enforcement thing. Okay. And, you know, is punish- whatever, whatever, whatever punishment may be a way of enforcement. Anything else? Yeah? There's something that nobody's picked up on is, yet, which is very important. Is reward not included because it's like a natural consequence? Yeah, reward is not included. Reward goes to, back to either enforcement or what the laws are meant to achieve. Yeah. Can you beat X subjects? We said that. Right. Yeah. That's debatable. So let's set that aside. Okay. That that's that's a very debatable idea. One of the things that are that are relatively uncontroversial. How about consistency? If the laws are not consistent and coherent, right? this is the thing that, by the way, annoys a lot of people about laws. That law becomes very nitpicky. But you know why law is nitpicky? Why is, law, why is law very nitpicky? Because they can contradict each other. Right, because if you have two laws, which in 99% of cases, both of them make sense, but then in 1% of cases, the principles contradict each other, now what do you have to do? You have to like split hairs and draw very distinct lines in order to make sure that you're being consistent. Because if you're not being consistent, right, this is like a famous law school thing that they do, is they ask a person a question where the answer is obviously one thing, and they ask a person the answer is obviously the other thing, and they start making the cases closer and closer, similar together. And you start to realize the principle that made so much sense here and the principle that made so much sense here, eventually, actually, you can see how they both are applicable and they contradict and you need some consistent way of deriving, deciding which one should be used when. So that's a logical consistency, but you also need consistency over time. If the rules change every second, is that, is that, is that sustainable? So you need, pres- right, this idea of consistency over time is known as precedent. Okay, so once you start thinking in these terms, then anything which is legal, just like any physical object has a size and a shape and a location, it's a real thing, and any family vacation has like, what are you going to do with the two-year-old when you, you know, at, at three o'clock in the afternoon? Like that's a real thing you have to do on, when you take a two-year-old on vacation. If you have a legal system, you have to have all of those elements, right? So that means that if, if Hashem has a will for a legal system, 
then he has a will for enforcement mechanisms. He has a will for adjudication. He has a will for consistency, logical consistency and consistency over time. Precedent, right? He has a will for having that knowledge accessible so people can use it to govern their behavior. Right? Now, if you start thinking all of those things through, does it make sense to say that God is keeping a secret answer key by him as to the exact right answers to all of these things and we're just in the dark trying to guess it? Or, or would it make more sense that God gives the, God gives the Jewish people um, certain foundational principles and pieces of information to work from? If, if you actually wanted like an actual functional legal system, which one makes more sense that God would do? Does God have a infinitely long micromanaged list of every law that we're supposed to ha- have, what we're supposed to observe. And then the, the sages, the rabbis for the rest of history are just trying to hopefully get it right. Or does it make more sense that if God actually wants a really functional legal system that involves some element of delegating authority to people who are going to have to adjudicate and retain and preserve and do all of those other tasks that we described? Yeah. No, because then it's just it's, it's not it's not a, it's 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 not an issue of no fun. Then you just don't have a legal system. In fact, in fact, what, what ends up happening, and this is this is this this what ends up happening is when you start to deny this, you run into you get into one of two things: either you lose the legal system because it just becomes everybody does whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Who are you to say how? Who are you to say what God really wants? And then everyone just you know. Or what ends up happening, and this is also not okay according to the Torah, is you just find the most persuasive, the most charismatic religious leader, and they just start basically a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. Right? But the idea, the idea that there's anything legal about it, there's a kind of a, a rule of law to, to, to the religion, doesn't work if you don't have this. And so you have, what ends up happening is that when you start throwing all this stuff out, then some number of people who are very sort of individually minded they tend to adopt a more religion is basically whatever makes you feel good, makes you feel close to God, and so you can do whatever you want. Or you tend to the opposite, and people with more authority in mind gravitate to a figure who's willing to exude that absolute authority on behalf of God. But the idea that you actually have law, that, that falls away. And so, you know, in one case, things become more permissive and more permissive. In the other case, things become more restrictive and more restrictive. Right? But, but the, a, a notion that there's some kind of coherent, consistent pattern and pre- precedence and things, that's just, that'll cease to exist. So if there is a legal element to Judaism and that legal element is going to be preserved, then there has to be some kind of you know, way that people are participating in it. Yeah? What's the response to people who, like, rather than viewing Torah or God's wisdom as something that like, is an accessible legal system, have this feeling of like God is playing a game with us where we don't know the rules and like we can't know the rules and we can't guess them. And like, I feel like there are people who go through life and their kind of philosophy is that, you know, God, yes, God is in charge. Yes, God has an idea of what is right and wrong. But like, I am just subject to this game and it's almost this like cruel experience and and they feel very much like I'm not having fun anymore but there's not a way out. So part of that I'll answer tomorrow. Okay? And part of it will answer today. The part of the answer today is this is why in Judaism um, 
one of the requirements in Judaism is to be educated. Because usually, um, when that is the case, is usually because there's a, there's a second side. That's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Well, one side of it is where a person, a person doesn't know. Now, sometimes a person doesn't know because they haven't taken the time to actually learn. They haven't taken the time to understand. And a lot of times that is the case because the person wants quick answers. And sometimes the answers and understanding how things work are more involved. Okay? So... Let's let's get let's let's use let's use another framework. If I want to spend time with my wife, so what are the possibilities? What or what are the rules? Well, number one, it's got to be something that I'm going to enjoy. Something that I'm not going to enjoy, that's not going to work. It has to be something that my wife enjoys, right? So it's pretty simple. You just make a little Venn diagram: the things I enjoy, the things she enjoys, whatever that overlap is. Those are the things we can do together we enjoy, yeah? Does that make sense? Anyone disagree with that? I mean, you have a budget and children. Fine, fine. We can add, we can add a few more circles, right? Things we can afford, right? Things we have the time for. Okay. But let's, let's, let's set those aside for right now. Okay? Just on, just on the relationship dynamic, not, on the, not, not putting into the other considerations. What I enjoy, what she enjoys, is that, that clear? Any, any other issue? Okay. Why do you both? Why do you need to enjoy it? If well, if we're going to spend time with her. Well, if I'm spending time with her doing something that I don't enjoy, that's not going to work very well. But the mm-hmm. goal isn't to enjoy. But if you're spending time, well, well, let's go a little bit. What's the goal of spending time together? To enjoy company. Is to be feel closer, and so one does not feel closer when one gets the sense that another person resents being around you doing the thing that's happening. And by the way, you should know that is that, yeah, if you if you want somebody, you want to feel closer to somebody and they're doing things just to make you happy or you're doing things just to make them happy over time, that's a recipe for feeling very estranged from each other. But you are picking up there's something wrong about this. That presupposes the things that I enjoy are fixed. There are things that I do not enjoy, but if I'm doing them with my wife, then I enjoy them. For instance, I do not enjoy grocery shopping. I despise it. <laughs> However, if I'm going grocery shopping with my wife, then I do enjoy it. There's still caveats that the grocery store isn't too crowded and like we're not going room with the kids. But that activity I'm doing it on my own, I, 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 I really do not look forward to. If you add the fact that I'm doing it with my wife, then I do look forward to it. It is enjoyable. So it's not correct to say that the list of activities that I like is fixed, the list of she likes is fixed, then we have to find the overlap. Those lists can be changed because the presence of the person actually constructs some of what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. That's a good way of measuring in yourself how much you love a person, which is how much of what you enjoy doing changes if you're doing it with them. So I do not enjoy playing with bricks or magnets. However... I have little children, and in the context of doing it with them, I do enjoy playing with little bricks and magnets. So now, if we think about it this way, what exactly is the overlap? If we talk about God, God being you know, absolutely transcendent, what exactly are the activities and things that God would make sense that God would find as important, as significant, that it would matter to God that there should be rules about so let's start big. 
How about the environment? Should God have rules about the environment that are important to him? Why? It's his world. How much effort did he put into creating it? Hey, Shane. And if it goes bust... <laughs> actually, not hey. It's less than hey. Huh. Yeah, just... Just exhale. <laughs> right. The sound and of hey. The sound of the letter hey. And if this whole world doesn't work out, can God just make another one? Yes. So, have you, have you ever done something which... Have you, have you ever... Right, but people use that in the wrong way. If you ever done something which requires effectively zero effort and is infinitely replaceable, those kinds of activities, how important are they to you that it really matters what... Okay, so then following that creation means God has to extend, which is effectively for God, zero effort, and God can always just make another world, mm -hmm. then how significant is it whether the environment goes bust or not to God? No. It shouldn't make any difference at all. Working down from there... Yeah? <laughs> if the whole world being inhabitable is it, so then working down, I think we've already, you know, like, like obviously God caring about which order I tie my shoes in certainly makes no sense. But people have this sometimes a strange thing where why would God care about the, the order in which I tie my shoes, which he does, by the way, um, but not care, why would he care about that? Shouldn't he care about like bigger things like being nice to people or bigger things like humanity or bigger things like the environment? But, but the truth of the matter is if you really think about God just on his own, there's not really a good reason why God should care about anything. Okay. Now, is there a good reason why you should care about, say, things like food? Yeah. Yeah, why? Because if we can presuppose for a moment that you care about yourself, if you don't eat, what happens? You die. Yeah, yeah. So, we can see your desire for food as an extension of your desire for your own survival. Okay, but it's kind of hard to kind of put that onto God. So if we think of God in isolation, it doesn't make sense that anything should matter to God, which means one could make the following argument, and many Jewish thinkers do in different ways. I'm phrasing it more in the way it's phrased in Chassidus. The fact that God cares about any of these laws presupposes that God's list of what he cares about has been influenced. Because... It doesn't make sense if we just start with God, that God should care about anything. So you have to say, first, something else has, so to speak, induced God to care. And given that he cares about whatever he cares about, therefore, there's all of these other things. So what is that thing, according to Judaism? In, in this analogy, are we God's wife? Mm-hmm. Or children. And in as much as God cares about his wife slash children, therefore, that constructs in God caring about all sorts of things, governing their lives, their reality. Okay. So it's not just that the practicalities of having a legal system imply some element of constructivism, but it's actually the very idea that God should care about anything is kind of constructed. That it's the fact that God cares about a particular mitzvah is constructed of the fact that God cares about the Jew. There's something going on with the Jew's reality that somehow affects God, affects the Jew, and therefore God cares about what's going on with that. Take that out and just talk about God on his own. There really is no reason to say that God should care about anything. Yeah? In this, um, just in the space of this analogy, is it meaningful that we are his wife, or can we be like an, a gender partner? So, because, uh, so I'm gonna say, because in Judaism, gender is not egalitarian, that genders are very specific. Um, in, in the way Jewish thinking is that, and we've spoken about this before in, in Tanya class, is that the unformed is associated with the male and the forming and giving shape is associated with the female. So it would only work to say that God is the husband and we are the wife. 
Um, it would not make sense to work the other way, given how Judaism understands the, the differences between genders. But in your grocery Right. So what is the case is that you have to realize is that is that when we talk about these things is that these are these are archetypes and themes and there is a limit to which they actually apply on real living people and real living people. It's purely biological. Um, Men can't gestate. Just doesn't work that way. Um, But when you talk about people's interactions and relationships, you can speak about male female dynamics um, on a number of levels. So, for instance, in a teaching environment. The, 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 the students would be considered female and the teacher would be considered male. Um, and that's not just because the teacher is the one giving the information the students are receiving it, but actually, who shapes the lesson, the teacher or the student? The student. So there's the, the, the really giving shape to it is the student. The teacher has a basic idea of where they want to go with, but the teacher is constrained by what the students are actually interested in, what their intellectual capabilities are, what their background is. And that gives shape. And the, very, the same teacher teaching the same idea to two different groups of students will produce entirely different classes. Right? And given that, you could entirely have a woman teaching a bunch of men and then in that case, relative to that. Right? So it's, it's not, you know, strictly speaking, if a person is biologically a man, then everything is male. And if a person is biologically a woman, everything is female. You have to adjust each thing for the context in which it's in. Yes? So Hashem created the world with like the effort of like the hey, but um, he created each person from within him. So even if he doesn't care so much about the world because it takes zero effort, he put like a he lot put of effort right. into a person. So. Right, and so in as much as Hashem cares about a person, which we're going to bracket as to why that is for right now, then what happens is that that he then for cares about things that are going to affect their relationship they're getting along which means that the idea that god has this list already ahead of time um independent of the jewish people doesn't make a lot of sense the laws um are being constructed by a combination of god's desire to be with the jewish people and the reality of what the jewish people are now that reality Therefore, means that different aspects of the Jewish people bring out different aspects of the Torah and it will create different laws, which is why um, we don't find anywhere that the, the sages seem to be bothered that different people are saying different things. What they're bothered by is inconsistency that somebody's contradicting themselves, violating precedent. These things we see really do bother the sages. But the fact that some people are doing one thing and some people are doing another thing. As long as we can see that both things are different versions of, of, of different ways of being formed to the same underlying thing, then there's not a problem. And that's because the idea is that the actual real will of God is only fully formulated through the participation involvement of the Jewish people. Now, broadly speaking, this applies not just to the rabbis, but this applies to all Jews. So I'm going to end on this and then we'll get to the, the, the difference between rabbis and regular Jews on Wednesday. But there is a principle that's mentioned a few times in the Talmud that the customs of the Jewish people is Torah. Has anyone heard of this? The customs of the Jewish people are Torah? Now what is a custom? It's, a, it's a something that a bunch of Jews decided to start doing. How could something that a bunch of Jews decided to start doing become Torah? Well, because if you have Jews who are 
Granted, they might not even be rabbis and scholars, but they are motivated by a desire to um, make more tangible, make more concrete Judaism, then those things give shape to the Judaism and, since th- and therefore that itself is the will of God. So, is it the will of God that you should eat gefilte fish on Shabbos? Not you personally. Or hamantashen on Purim. Okay, right. So there's, there's, there's caveats on this. But yeah, there is an idea that the foods that the Jews have in each community have um, used to give shape and texture and color to their observance of Shabbos, that takes on a sanctity to God. Now, it doesn't mean it's the same thing as like not driving on Shabbos. Okay? Um, and that's why it's important to eat latkes and donuts. Is it as important as lighting the menorah? No, it's not as important. But this idea that the Torah is, the Torah is something that's being constructed through the relationship of Hashem and the Jewish people, even though to many times it feels like you're discovering it, the place where that becomes most evident is the idea that customs are considered to be part of the Torah. Because customs are not things that are legislated by the rabbis. They're not something that the God handed down on Mount Sinai. It's something that some Jews trying to make more tangible, more concrete, more um, experiential, the actual lived experience of Judaism, those things actually become part of the form of Judaism and become sanctified even to God. And once you keep that in mind, it's perfectly reasonable. Like if I have more than one child, so what's important in my relationship with one of my children is not going to be exactly identical to what's important in my relationship with another one of my children. Now, are there going to be broad similarities and broad themes that are the same with all? Yeah, because I'm the same person. But there is a level of variation that we should expect because there are different relationships with different people. Just one second. And that's why we can have different views by diff- for different schools of thought and different communities, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, all the way down to family customs and all the way down even to certain individual things. Because the Torah is not just a list of right and wrong answers, but is actually being given shape and constructed. Again, it's not a free-for-all. You can't just make up whatever you want. Construction has to work mutually. But that actually allows for, if you have this view, you can understand how it, it could be very, very bad for an Ashkenazi to eat rice on Pesach and perfectly fine for a Sephardi to eat rice on Pesach. And it's not because God is being hypocritical, but because his relationship with this group of Jews is slightly different than his relationship with those group of Jews. And the way they have can, can help construct it and make tangible the, the halacha has small variations. Sometimes those variations appear very big. If you want to go through this, goes back to education, we go through the whole system, the whole development, and you see what's happening, you realize how small those variations actually are. Yes, and then I want to tell a story. So the list that is influenced, God's list of things that's influenced, are those, are the only influences, his desire to be with the Jewish people and the reality of the Jewish people? There's his desire to be with the Jewish people, the reality of the Jewish people, and his wisdom, which is in the, the written Torah. So basically what you have is, I'll get more into this on Wednesday of how this works, but, but you have this interplay between the Torah as it comes down from Hashem, which is just um, the written Torah and the principles by which you're supposed to approach it, and the actual Torah that we practice, which is how real Jews use those principles to understand the written Torah. And that becomes the actual living Torah. Just like conception, there's 
what the man transmits, and then there's what how the woman doesn't just receive that, but actually changes that and gives that, makes that into a living person. By the way, if giving Torah is conception, what's birth? Anyone know? Long that, yeah, the coming of Mashiach. So, the reality. the reality of the Jewish people. Now, to be clear, the reality of the Jewish people is not, you know, is always more involved than just what you particularly want at this moment. Right? There's the reality of the Jewish people has to transcend, go over all of, all of time, has to take everything into account. Okay. So there is a principle in Judaism, um, which is that Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world, which means that how Hashem governs the world takes into account the relationship that the Jewish people through the Torah. Which means if the Torah is, is developed and practiced slightly differently in different places by different groups of Jews, then that means how God runs the world would be slightly different in different places. So one of the laws in the Torah is what's called the laws of trefa. A trefa is a person or animal who has a, um, a injury or a disease that, according to the Torah, they will not live out the year, or they're not expected to live out with the year. It would require some kind of miraculous intervention. What's it called? A trefa. A trefa. Trefa. The origin of the word trefa, like non-kosher. And so there is a story that there was a... So the, and actually, this is one of the areas where Ashkenazim and Sephardim actually differ. So when animals are slaughtered for food, some animals are considered to be kosher to Sephardim and not Ashkenazim, and some animals are considered to be kosher for Sephardim and not Ashkenazim because they differ on the exact criteria depending on different kinds of lesions and holes and scar tissue and internal organs as to whether the animal is considered a trefa or not. So the story goes is that there was a chassid who came to the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, and he was very sick with a lung disease. And the Tzemach Tzedek told him that in Europe, the halacha convention is to follow the rulings of Ramesha Isserlis, who was the chief rabbi of Krakow um, in the 1500s, known as the Ramah. And he rules that your kind of disease renders a person an animal trefa. However, in Israel, they follow the rulings of Yosef Kairo, known as the Beis Yosef, who was the chief rabbi of Tzfas, same time period, author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. And so I said, I suggest you move to Israel because there, your disease is not terminal. But if you stay here, it is. Mm-hmm. It means the idea that God looks in the Torah and creates the world. So if the Torah is slightly different because of this constructivist thing, then the same rules that God uses to govern one part of the world or one group of people might vary. And again, we could think about relationships. Do you rigidly follow some sort of algorithm with each person you interact with? Or do you adjust how you relate to them given the nature of that relationship? Right? One of the things that is annoying to children or every parent realizes is that you have to be stricter with some of your children and lenient with others. Right? I have one of my sons um, needs a long leash. Another one of my sons, if you give him an inch, he takes a mile. That doesn't mean I always get it right, but that means that what I ignore in one, I can't ignore in the other. And what happens if one of them picks up on it? It's a problem. Now, as you mature and you get older, you can realize that that's what's happening to you. Like the fact that my father treated me and my siblings differently from each other, like eventually you grow up and realize that. But when you're younger, it's hard to appreciate that. And this idea that, that the construction of the actual Torahs we lived is a combination of God's wisdom and desire plus the reality of the Jewish people, and that's being sorted out, and that creates the actual halachas and the actual principles and the actual interpretation. And then... 
and therefore there can be slight variations. That's something that's critical because that's the kind of the background in which all of the discussions between Rashi and the Ramban in interpreting the Chumash in the different views in the Gemara, in different halachic practices. And that doesn't mean everything is open-ended, but it does mean that there isn't this insistence that there's one right way and everybody has to do it that way. But rather, you can kind of, an Ashkenazi could agree that the Sephardim are doing right for them, but not right for me, and vice versa. But still could agree that the people who are driving on Shabbos are doing it wrong, because that violates all precedent. Tomorrow, we're going to talk more about the authority of the Torah in and of itself, and how the Torah expects us to relate to that. And then we'll talk about more of the, really laying out the different parts of Torah and how they interact with each other on Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And I don't know how to play a game every class.